Thank you for joining us today. We are starting a brand new series in the book of Amos. But as we do that, I want you to remember the words that we just sang. Jesus Christ, my living hope. And just before that, we sang, And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Because just before that, we sang that amazing grace means he took my place. He bore my cross. You see, what we celebrate at the Lord's table, what we celebrated just even a week ago with Jesus' death and resurrection, is that the punishment that I deserve, the the punishment that all of us deserve for sin and disobedience to God, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Now that's important for you to remember because as we get into Amos, Amos is one of the prophets and you're going to hear the word punishment several times just in the first chapter. And so it helps to realize that Amos fits into a bigger story, a broader context in the entire Bible. And I think you're actually going to get a lot out of Amos for a couple of reasons. Because God gave us Amos, not just the man, but the book. Like there's a reason that this book, this prophet has his words recorded for us still today. And so I want to encourage you that when you dig into God's word like this, not just the bite-sized pieces for a quick morning devotional, that's, that's good, that's really good. But in addition to that, When we go verse by verse, even through some of these seemingly more difficult books of the Old Testament, God loves it. You honor God when you do that. When when we sit down and read the book that he wrote for us, he delights in that time that we get to spend together. And so even though some of the, the people and the places and the events, the details in Amos can feel really foreign to us, As we unravel them, I think what you'll see is exactly how serious God is about sin, but also the goodness, the righteousness, and the character of God who's willing to speak to us through this book. In fact, the book of Amos just starts this way. It says, the words of Amos. Makes sense, right? Good way to start. I'm tracking with you. The words of Amos who was among the sheep breeders. Now that's interesting already. Because notice that he's not a pastor, he's not a priest, he's not a king, he's not even a prophet, although he will prophesy. He has no formal training, he's just a regular guy. That it doesn't take formal training for him to be obedient to God, it just takes his faithfulness. He doesn't even say that he's a shepherd, because maybe that carries too much religious language. He he literally says, I'm a sheep breeder of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, now you lost me. (laughs) So so don't worry if you got lost. There's a bunch of that in this first chapter, names and places that we're not used to hearing. But we'll unpack this a little bit as we go, because I I think the other reason that we're going to get a lot out of Amos is because Jesus himself is talking about the prophets constantly. That Jesus sees his ministry as completely interwoven with that of the prophets. And so throughout his life, he described the way all of the prophets, that includes Amos, are fulfilled in him. Not only that, there's a moment leading up to Jesus' death, which we just remembered at the Lord's Supper, where he's confronted by people and he tries to explain his own ministry by telling them a parable that basically boils down to 
God sent his people a prophet with a warning to try to get them back on track and they rejected him. So he sent another prophet and they rejected that one. So he sent another prophet and they rejected that one until finally he sent his own son who they both rejected and killed. And when Jesus tells this parable, the religious leaders around him respond, and I quote, certainly not. <laughs> like, ignore a warning from God, we would never. Reject one of God's messengers, we would never. Kill the son of God himself, we would never. Jesus answers them by saying, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And you begin to see how it all holds together. Jesus uses a verse from Psalm 118 from the Hillel that we just finished a study on right before Easter, connects it to all of the history of the prophets to show how he himself would be rejected to bring forgiveness and salvation. Jesus has Amos in mind too. And so as we get into this book, I want you to watch, even in the midst of words like punishment, how the message of Jesus is going to come through. Because as we read this first chapter, I think the key verse of this chapter, maybe of the entire book, is when Amos sets it up this way in chapter one, verse two, that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. You see, everything else that he's going to say to the nations, to Judah, and to especially Israel are packed into this phrase that the Lord roars. It's a picture of a lion, but what you have to understand is that a lion does not roar to show off, despite what we see like in movies and things. When a lion roars, it's actually to freeze its prey in its tracks because it is about to attack. It's about to bring the pain. And so that is the moment that Amos is speaking into. I mean, talk about a, a job. Like, thanks, Lord, I would love to serve you. Does it have to be like this? But that's the moment he's speaking into because in some ways it is the most successful season in Israel's history and yet they are farther from God than ever before. And you'll see woven through this story how he has given them warning time and time again, trying to draw them back. But just like Jesus' parable, they've ignored him and now the lion is roaring. But I don't want you to miss where this roar is coming from. It says it's coming from Zion and Jerusalem, which in some ways are like two words for the same place. That Zion is the mount and Jerusalem is the city and at the center of that is the temple. Now Israel themselves had abandoned the temple. They were worshiping in their own way, in their own places. But the temple is a picture of kind of this, this strange combination both of God's justice and his mercy. Because of his righteousness that he has to deal with the things that break the world or he wouldn't be good. We wouldn't want a God that looked at evil things and said, oh well, what do you want me to do about it? That it is a place where there is death for sin. And yet the temple is also the place where sacrifice through death, there is forgiveness for sin. And so from the place he was trying to call them to his mercy and his forgiveness is where he is roaring from. Because I think what Amos wants us to get here for you and I is that we recognize the roar for repentance. 
So he's going to have some heavy words for Israel, for the nations around them. And I got to tell you, just by the fact that you're watching this today, just by the fact that you you didn't turn it off yet, (laughs) you're already in a better place than they were. Because you right now are leaning in to hear, what would Amos say to me? What would God say to me? We already have an opportunity to absorb this differently than they might have. The, the way that God was hoping that they would, and it starts by recognizing the roar for repentance, to actually listen in to the warning and hear what might need change. You know, as I think about this, probably about a dozen years ago, I was ignoring warnings for a lesson that I needed to learn. So to save myself time, I thought I'd like to drive my car until the gas is as low as possible because if I wait as long as I can, then over the course of my life, I'll refill the gas less and waste less time standing at gas stations, right? Just very, really important things in life. And I had my own personal prophet in my home, uh, my wife, giving me warnings. <laughs> Melissa would say, I think you're going to run out of gas. It's, it's already on E. And I drove to the store and back. I think you need to get gas. And I kept telling her like, I know, I know, I know. Until one day, I literally drove two miles to church and couldn't make it home. The car died literally across the street from the gas station I was going to pull into, and now I had to take the walk of shame (laughs) through the intersection while my car is blocking traffic, borrow a gas can from the gas station, walk back, pour it in so I can drive 100 yards into the gas station and fill up. Lesson learned, right? Well, actually, about a month ago, (laughs) my wife had been telling me the same thing all week long. Hey, I think we need gas in the car. And I told her, I got it. It's fine. I got it. And I made it to the pet store, and I did not make it back. (laughs) Now, how goofy would it be if I called my wife in that moment and said, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let me run out of gas? Why didn't you do something, right? Obviously, she tried. I ignored her. That's essentially what is happening here in the book of Amos. That this is sort of like, as the the warning is ignored, God speaks a little louder, speaks a little louder, until finally he's roaring, trying to get people's attention that their obedience to him matters and that he's going to have to deal with this. And so we want to recognize the roar for repentance coming in this particular moment of history for Amos, but seeing the way that it applies for us. Because while the details are different, the kind of the questions of the heart behind these things are very similar to our culture today. So when Amos says that this is in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, right? When he says that in verse one, you got to remember that the kingdom had been split into the southern part of Judah and the northern part of Israel. And, And 2 Kings tells us about Uzziah, that he's also called Azariah, and that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Not all the people of Judah were, but their king was on a pretty good track. But then he also mentions Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So I know our brains start to get a little fuzzy. We have a hard time picturing that timeline. But for someone living in that day, it would be like if I said to you, okay, so this was in the days of Abraham Lincoln about a month before the war. You know exactly what I'm talking about because these are critical moments in your nation's history. So they hear this, they know exactly the moment that Amos is talking about. In fact, this king, Jeroboam, was actually the second king who carried that name. 
In fact, if we flip back to 2 Kings, we see a little bit more about him. Now, if these verses look familiar to you, it's because Amos takes place in the same time as Jonah. And they are both connected to this same king. So we hear in 2 Kings that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was king of Israel, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, different Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So there's kind of like Jeroboam the first and Jeroboam the second, okay? But there's a lot of generations in between there. So in fact, God has been following this track for like 150 years of Israel's wicked kings. And what's kind of crazy is you see the purple part down here is Judah. The green part was Israel before Jeroboam, but he had massive military success and took back all of this yellow part as well and expanded the kingdom of Israel. So in one sense, they're at a time in history where they have the greatest affluence and the greatest influence that they've ever experienced. And yet, it says he did not depart from the sins of that other Jeroboam. Well, you go back to discover that this other Jeroboam, because he had the northern kingdom, it meant Jerusalem was not part of his kingdom. But everybody wants to go to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. So he picks two of his own cities, sets up two other temples, puts golden calves in them. Like, did you not read anything from the Old Testament? He puts golden calves in them and announces... This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And all the people start worshiping golden calves in these fake temples. Now, imagine you are Amos. Okay, let's, let's bring this back into like, try to get my own mind thinking about what Amos is dealing with here. Imagine you are Amos and God says, hey, I know you're not even part of that company, but I need you to go to their boss. Tell him everything he's doing wrong while he's experiencing greater success than ever before, like he's going to listen to anything you say. Right? This is a tough task for Amos. And so he is really going to hone in on Israel where this king Jeroboam is at work. But what's really interesting now for the rest of the first chapter is he doesn't mention Israel again. Instead, he ends up talking about the nations all around Israel. So to help us get a sense of how the book works and a sense of what's going on there, check out this short clip from the Bible Project's summary of Amos. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. So we'll come back to this map a couple of times to help us get a sense of this because the odds are if I hid the map right now, I couldn't redraw it. <laughs> so it helps me to see that the places he's talking about slowly zoom in on Israel themselves. That Israel's actually going to hear it three times more than everybody else. But another thing that's going on here is that Judah and Israel claim to follow God. The rest of these cities and countries probably don't even care. And yet God is showing them that there is like a universal standard that he holds people accountable to. That the things we're going to read about these other places, probably all of us would agree, 
yeah, that's wicked stuff. And we're going to see how God deals with it. But what you got to realize is that the message of God through the Bible is overwhelmingly of mercy and of grace. As one commentator put it, essentially by the time that God speaks about judgment or consequences, it is usually long overdue. You know, 150 years of Israel's disobedience, even longer for some of these cities and places. But remember, there's one that's not on this map. Remember I said that Jonah and Amos happen at the same time in history? Because Nineveh would have heard a message just like these cities, these nations would, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. Remember, we looked at Jonah earlier this year. And Nineveh repented. They heard the roar. They relented. They repented and God relented. So even as we hear these words today towards these places, you have to remember that God's default is mercy. That there is always, as long as you're still alive, if you're watching this today, there's still an opportunity to respond to the message that God is bringing. And so God will use this language that for each of these places, they've hit like the maximum of their wickedness. And the way he does that is by saying that they have three transgressions, even four. Which is not because there were only three or only four, but it's an idiom they use in the Hebrew language to say, basically, they did this and this and this and even this. Like, it's gone as far as it can go. So for us, if we're going to absorb this differently, we want to make three transitions to avoid four transgressions. That there may be things in our life and honestly in our culture that we would say, I want to change that now. Let's move away from that. Let's transition before it's too late, right? And so the first of those is really going to be this idea that we've got to put people over personal gain. And so you hear that and you think like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I, I see that around me, right? That people are willing to trample others on their way to success, that often it's easy to ignore those in need because I, I don't even necessarily mean to, but I'm just focused on me today. So watch how this happens because we're going to start out with Damascus and Gaza on sort of the outside of that map. And so the Lord says in verse three, notice each of these will start by saying, thus says the Lord. Each of them will end by saying, says the Lord. So thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. So Gilead was land that belonged to Israel and he says they've threshed it, which is basically their way of saying trampled it. They're just walking all over people on their way to success using military atrocities to get what they wanted. So that's what they did. And now here's how God responds. Verse four, but I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria shall go captive to Ker, says the Lord. Now again, I don't even know if I pronounced all those places right. <laughs> Some of them I've heard of. I've heard of Syria, right? I've heard of Damascus. But here are the words I want you to notice. It says, he will devour the palaces, cut off the inhabitant, and the one who holds the scepter. See, essentially what God is bringing against them is that they have cut off the inhabitants of other nations in order to build more palaces, right? Vacation home, that affluence, and increase their influence to have a more powerful scepter in the hand 
of their leadership. So he says, because you cut off inhabitants of other places to increase your affluence and influence, I will cut off your inhabitants, palaces, and the scepter. It's the natural consequence of the things that they were doing. He goes on then with Gaza in verse six to say, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. Now, now what he means there is that it is bad enough to sell people into slavery, but for Gaza, when they went into a place in war and didn't even need the labor, they not only took slaves, they took whole populations and sold them to other nations. The old, the young, men, women, children, they took the whole captivity captive. So verse seven, God says, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So remember, all these place names fit on that map. Neighbors to the north, neighbors to the east, neighbors to the south, neighbors to the west, and the things that they are doing that God is calling them to account for. So you and I can take a deep breath, right? Because I have never threshed anybody. Like, you know, that, that means like breaking down the wheat and blowing away the chaff. I haven't done that. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I certainly have never sold anybody into slavery. So thank goodness I can skip this page. Um, and, and let's get back to the Jesus stuff, right? Well, here's what I think Amos wants us to think about. Well, I may not have committed war atrocities. There is a reality in our hearts that it is all too easy to put my personal gain ahead of other people. Sometimes it's active, right? We're, we're willing to use other people to get ahead. We're willing to kind of push other people aside. We see a need over there, but I'm more focused on me. Other times it's, it's almost passive, like, Unintentionally, we just ignore the needs around us. We don't even know they're there because we're not looking while I further pursue my own affluence and influence. And we may not even feel it as like a thing we're doing wrong because it's just been so long since we really asked God, what, what's his plan for today? What's his plan for my life? And so that's something for us to kind of think about, kind of take in because it builds up as we come to the next part of the map. We've been to Damascus and Gaza now we zoom in a little bit more to Tyre and Edom, kind of that, that next level down of the circle. Now to Tyre and Edom, Amos is going to say, essentially they need to choose love over revenge. All right, so each of these, we're, we're kind of looking at the negative and trying to draw out what is the opposite of that? What is the thing that we could replace this with, that we could avoid these things? And, and kind of by looking at the opposite, we begin to see how the character of God is reflected here that the things they're doing actually go against his character. And so what they should do is choose love over revenge. And again, we would all agree with it, but that can be a lot harder in practice, can't it? At least for me, I know there's two primary ways that revenge shows up. One of them is when someone has betrayed me. I just shouldn't even go there, but I just, I had one last week where somebody made a promise to me. We agreed on it, I had it in writing, and then when I came back to them and said, okay, let's do that, they literally said, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it after all. And the feeling we get when someone goes back on their word like that, I can start to long for revenge. You know, the other place is when we're jealous. 
when we see someone else getting ahead and we wish that we could, and it's strange how that can actually turn into an anger in us. So watch how this happens in Tyre and Edom, because verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. Notice, Edom keeps coming up here. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. But the problem for Tyre is that they had actually agreed to help Israel until they realized it was going to be more profitable and more convenient to betray them and sell them into slavery instead. So they did not remember the covenant, the promise of brotherhood that they had actually made. It's a moment of betrayal that would draw feelings of revenge. But let's go further. Let's go to Edom. Verse 11 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword. You see that word brother come through again. And he cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Taman, which shall devour the places of Bozrah. Now again, a lot of different place names here, but here's what you want to know about Edom. The people of Edom are actually the descendants of Esau. So if we get a little bit of Bible history here, we try to zoom out, get the big picture. Jacob and Esau were brothers. Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. Now, Jacob was not always on the up and up. He kind of tricks Esau into giving him the birthright and then he deceives his dad into giving him Edom, Esau's promise. And so there's instantly bad blood literally between these two brothers over betrayal and jealousy. And yet, like for every way that Esau would be justified in being angry, there's still this sense that God wants him to show forgiveness at some point. Right? There, you hear it again. That's the character of God. That there is a sense that mercy and forgiveness still need to be available if we're pursuing love. But instead, as, as the verse says, Esau, all through his family, into this nation that has now come from him, hundreds of years later, their anger tears perpetually. They continue to keep their wrath and everybody keeps selling Israel as slaves to Edom. That all through like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, through the kings, Edom is taking any chance they get to not help or to actively hurt the people of Israel and holding on to that revenge. Now, I know as I describe this that there are places in your life that are probably nothing like the, the wars and captivity that it's describing here and yet are incredibly difficult to overcome because it feels like revenge is the right answer. You know, a few years ago, I, I met a guy here at Horizon, really nice guy, but actually the first time I met him was because he had just been caught essentially gambling away all of his family's savings. And so fortunately, he had heard the roar for repentance. He, he was totally willing to accept the natural consequences that were going to come from this, but he also wanted to really work on repairing his relationship with God and his relationship with his wife. And so we started working on that, talking about that. And, and what was incredible was like his wife was hurt and rightfully so. She was angry and rightfully so. But she was also a Christ follower. 
And she decided that she was going to try not to take revenge, but to lean into love and try to rebuild their marriage. Well, so then it was interesting because then there came a moment where she was having a hard time trusting him. Like, duh. But now he's starting to get angry because he knows, like he's felt it, he'll never do it again. God has changed him and she doesn't believe me and she won't trust me. It's like, hey man, I think you gotta give her some time. Like, you gotta recognize what you did here and that it takes a while to build up trust. So you don't wanna give in to anger either. And because they both chose love, because they both leaned into Jesus for his unlimited love, when ours runs out, they were able to repair their relationship with God and with each other. They moved away a couple of years ago, but they would tell you today that their marriage is stronger than ever before, and so is their faith. And that's a difficult story. You know, and, and, and maybe for you, you, know, you, you don't have a story of gambling. You know, maybe, maybe you do. You know, maybe there's substance abuse. Maybe there's, you know, there are things like this. But to be honest, one of the things that I've heard the most through the pandemic over the last year, year and a half now, is that the greatest stressor beyond anything going on in the world around us is just at home. Spouses fighting more than ever before. So if you felt that, I'll just tell you, you're not alone. And the love of Jesus, as like cheese whiz as it sounds, I, I can honestly tell you the greatest marital advice I've ever heard is that arguments might happen, but when we disagree, if we both go and talk to Jesus and then come back together, that always goes better. If I'm really listening to him, because uh, I, I like to listen to uh, Joe Foch, a, a pastor out of Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, I don't know where he got this, but I got it from him, that he says that when he and his wife fight, it is always easier to confess his wife's sins to God <laughs> than his own. <laughs> but that God just won't let him stay there, that God says, Joe, I, you know, maybe she's got some things we'll talk about too. I'll, I'll talk to her, but let's talk about you, Joe. Like, let's talk about you, Drew. Will you choose love? Will you be willing to forgive? Will you show mercy? Will you walk back into that situation and let Christ take the lead. See, that could have made things completely different for these two nations, and it can for us. That's where it's like, I don't know these cities, and I don't know this map, and I don't know the... But love over revenge? Yeah, that's a challenge I'm willing to take. And that's the kind of thing that if each of these places, including the last one we're going to look at today, if they'd heard this roar for repentance, things could have changed for them. So the last one that we'll look at today is Ammon, a little bit closer in, starting to hone in towards Israel. Now, I, I just want to own, there's just a couple verses here on Ammon, but they are pretty intense. Verse 13 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead. Why? That they might enlarge their territory. You see, what they need to hear is that they were hurting people who couldn't even fight for themselves. What Ammon needs to hear is that we've got to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. Because when you think about this, what they've done, that it says that they did that, that they could enlarge their territory. Like, how does it help to attack pregnant women? Like, that's, that's really where you win the battle? But if you think about this historically, why did Pharaoh try to kill all of the Israelite babies? Because he was afraid that they would rise up to become an army and that one of them would be a leader who would mess up his plans for his life. But there were faithful parents who hid Moses. <laughs> Moses was saved and he did lead his people out of deliverance. 
You go to the New Testament. Why did Herod try to kill all the baby boys around Bethlehem? Because he was afraid that one of those babies was going to mess up his plans for his life and take over his king. But faithful parents hid their baby and Jesus is the king of kings. The parallels there are on purpose. I'm telling you, the whole Bible is one big thing that all holds together. Ammon goes one step further. They said, you can't wait till these babies are born. Who knows what happens then? What if somebody hides them? What if you have to kill the unborn child? I know it's heavy. And honestly, even as I say that out loud, it's like, do we go there? Do we not go there? Because I can think of things in our culture on all of these that like our country can mirror some of this stuff. Maybe for different reasons, but it's part of why as Christ followers, we see the value in the women that are being attacked. We see the value in the unborn child that is under attack. And like God, we want to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. In fact, God is going to do that in verse 14. It says, but I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Now that's a heavy word. And I know that it is. And so I want to pause again and just remind you of something right now. Because as we look at these things, putting, you know, it, it, the negative side of it, putting personal gain over people, choosing revenge over love, not fighting for those who can't fight for themselves or, or actively hurting them. There may be things in our culture or things in your own life that you feel like, oh no, that's, that's me, I've done that. And yet the picture we see here of the goodness and the character of God is that he is the one who always puts people over personal gain. When Jesus came to earth, that is who he is. That he was willing to go to the cross for nothing that he had done wrong. Like his personal gain would have looked very different than nails through his hands and a crown of thorns on his head. Crown of thorns on his head. It would have looked very different than taking on this kind of wrath of God for us. But he put people, he put you over personal gain. That Jesus is the one who chose love over revenge. Like if anybody could want revenge on me for the things that I've done, it's Jesus. But he chose love for you. That he is the one who fights for those who can't fight for himself. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. It's exactly what we sang this morning that he would bear my cross, that he would take my place. That when I think of God, this same God, who realizes how wicked and broken the world can be and has to deal with it, when I think of God, his son not sparing sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that he would take this kind of punishment and put it on Christ so that I can be forgiven. Jesus Christ is my living hope and yours. So if there are things that are painful for you to remember, would you please remember too that there is a warning that, 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 if, that if God is going to judge the wickedness of these nations and ignore ours, then he kind of owes these an apology. Like there is a warning that we need to hear, but there is blessing too. And that whatever is in your past, 
Whatever is in your present, whatever it is that may make you feel like turning this off right now, don't do it. Because when we hear the roar for repentance, we know a God who loves to show mercy, who relents, who gives grace and forgiveness and says to you as a daughter and son, I'm so glad you came back. All is forgiven. See, that's the character of God. That's the message that people need to hear. In fact, I don't think I told you what Amos' name means, did I? The name Amos literally means burden bearer. He bears a burden. And so I think for us, we can think about it that way, that we can bear God's message to the people around us, that you can bear God's message to the people around you. And there are times where that may include warning, that there are things that are going to hurt us that God wants to warn us against, that there are consequences for those things that God wants to warn us against. But there is great blessing in that message too. You know, I, I think just, just briefly of stories like my friend Ricardo. Ricardo was having a major problem with anger. And by the time that I can see it blowing up his life, like, you know, things are already hurting under the surface. And I remember the day that he and I went out to lunch. He was, he was not a Christ follower. He was more like, maybe God exists. I don't know. And I just said, look, man, here's the warning. If you don't get a grip on this, like it's going to trash your family. It's going to trash your career. It's going to trash your life. And that's not me being a jerk. That's just what happens. But I've dealt with it too. And here's what I learned. And you don't have to believe me and you don't have to try it. But there's this blessing that there's a God who will forgive your anger and who can offer you self-control. Because there's, there's like a righteous anger when things are going on around us that makes us want to act. Like that's, that's in God too. But there's also this, this broken anger, this revenge anger, this self-centered anger. And God can actually give you self-control to have peace in those moments. And I've lived it. And it sounds really bold and I guess it is. But I love him enough to, to share a bit of the warning and a lot of the blessing. And down through the days, he actually did become a Christ follower. He ended up getting baptized. Which reminds me, if you're a Christ follower and you haven't been baptized, we have baptisms coming up in May. And actually we have a couple meetings right here at Horizon over the next few weeks where if you've got questions about it, want to talk about it more, please don't miss that. So that, that's just an aside because it's one of the coolest things you will ever celebrate is, is your own baptism. But that's also why we do things like authentic manhood. In fact, Ken Kington, who's leading us through that, he's here this weekend. Awesome guy, funny guy, life experience, loves God. And I'm even bringing some of my own friends. I've got at least one neighbor who said, yeah, let's do that together. Who doesn't know God the way that I do. But I don't quite have to take the message of Amos. Like, isn't it nice that I can invite a buddy to authentic manhood and get some really cool tips for fatherhood instead of saying, fire is coming on you at this point. So I'd encourage you too. If you've been praying about a guy, praying about a friend, praying about a neighbor, would you be courageous and, and invite him? Whether you guys end up watching it on Zoom at home or, or coming into the building together, it's a great way to bear God's message to the people around you. So I think our key takeaway for today just kind of falls right there then. To think about what would Amos say to me? Maybe to our culture? But maybe even more so. Like how do I become a better evangelist because I understand God through Amos? Who can I bear God's message to? Let's pray that way. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy to us, your kindness to us, that you are willing to warn and eager to bless. God, I pray that each of us in our own lives would hear the roar for repentance, 
Lord, I pray for our nation and our world that we would hear a call from a righteous God to turn back that we might experience your blessing. Lord, I pray for authentic manhood this weekend that you would bring the guys there that you wanna speak to, that you want to reach into their lives. God, that for all of us, you would give us the courage to dig deeper into your word, into our own faith, and to bear your message to those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.